Excited to go through this passage today in Acts 6. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be, or a device. We're working through the book of Acts. It's one of my favorite books. It's at least on that shelf of my favorite books. And this is an intriguing passage, and it's going to carry a lot of meaning for us as a church today. And I really believe if you have eyes to see, it will show you a more compelling picture of who Jesus is as well. So this is the word of God for us, Acts 6, verse 1, and we're going to read through just the first seven verses, and then we're going to talk about it for just a little bit. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay. Um, Some of you were probably here in the earliest days, maybe two or three of you, but Legacy's very first piece of equipment that we ever bought was a Keurig, a coffee maker. We actually burned through a a couple of those because the most complicated thing about us was how we were going to get our coffee. Um, And it was just kind of, honestly, it it was attractive. The simplicity of who we were is as a people. Communion was something that we took around a pool table in the basement. Um, we discussed the Bible while we sat on bar stools and bean bags and even on the floor. We didn't have a worship team. We didn't have an anything team back then. Didn't have staff meetings because we didn't have a staff. Didn't even have payroll back then. We were basically a community group and a small one at that. Now, that all ended fairly fast and we began as we added people, adding tools to help manage People. We started adding services, apps, subscriptions, consultants, different kinds of services, meetings. We needed structure because things were just getting more complicated, increasingly more complex. And with the added complexity came a little bit of an added temptation, to be honest with you, to swing towards focusing on management instead of mission. Just the minutia of management because we believed it's important that people are cared for. But it gets complicated. Now we've got tools, lots of them. I use Asana as a personal productivity tool. Our, our team uses Trello, both pastors and staff. We use Slack, Canva, Zoom, Google Suite, GroupMe, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We have scanners out there to check our kids into a larger ecosystem called Planning Center, which tracks everybody and the finances that are overseen by a firm over three accounts. We've got radios to communicate back and forth. An officer out there. We've got insurance. We've got payroll. We've got background checks, on and on and on and on. And we're a small church. We're a really small church, but we're not on the couch anymore, right? We're way past the Keurig. 
And so the temptation to drift missionally away from what God has called us to do has just grown over time. And, and listen, as we continue to grow, the temptation to missionally drift will also grow. And just imagine for a moment how paralyzing it must have been for the early church as they go from 100 plus believers up to what could be 20,000 in under two quarters, under half a year. I mean, I doubt any of them went to school and got a master's in organizational leadership. No no ability to borrow from what the churches down the street are doing to to help learn what to do with with their growth. No, No TED Talks, no books on management, no apps, no no spreadsheets, nothing like that. You know, there was one wise and very esteemed pastor in the uh, Memphis area that told me once when I was with a big group of planters about a decade ago, Luke, he said, churches are one part community, one part cause, and one part corporation. And we recoil at that a little bit, don't we? Corporate seems like such a muddy word to put in the same thought line as words like community and cause. But it really shouldn't be. There's nothing dirty about it. Everything organic and beautiful is highly ordered and corporate. I mean, the word just means uh, an entity that is going in one direction, one entity made up of many things. And if you put a skin cell underneath the microscope or maybe looked at photosynthesis, it feels and looks very corporate, although it's very beautiful and it's very organic at the same time. In fact, the Bible occasionally reminds us that growth requires, healthy growth requires scaled structure. Scaled structure. In fact, one of my favorite parts of the Bible that really exemplifies this, I think probably the most, is in Exodus 18, when Moses is learning how to lead something that is very big, and again, did not go to school for this, and he's speaking with Jethro, his father-in-law, and Moses, it says this in verse 17, it'll be up on the screen, stay where you're at next. It says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. Now, what is he doing that's not good? He's judging people all day. He's deciding between matters. People are slamming into each other. It's a dramatic mess, unmet expectations, a lot of collisions. They bring their matters to him. He sits and he just decides what, what is right and what is wrong. He's discerning, right? But he's doing it all. And so Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Verse 21, he says, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any smaller matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Very simple. Very, very good consultation from Jethro here. He says, listen, this isn't good. Scale this thing to function. Make this healthy. You're getting distracted. There's basically missional drift happening right here. So he's saying, share the load. So what does Moses do? He goes corporate. And he scales this for the, for the sake of community, for the sake of cause. We took this route as well as a church. Legacy is proof that in order for ministry to grow, ministry has to be shared or mission will drift, that's for sure. In order for ministry to grow, ministry must be shared or the mission will drift. 
Because in addition to us having more structure now, we've got more people sharing the load. Our org chart is bigger than two squares, which is what we started with. It's much more layered too. I was just talking to the production team back here. We meet, there's probably about a dozen people over here. We pray together. We talk about how this is all gonna happen. And, and, and it was interesting to me as I was looking on the app today. Today, we had 27 people signed up to volunteer. 27 people, and we've got people back there that we just prayed for a minute ago, people out front right now. 27 people, give or take a person, right? That doesn't even count the staff we have that are milling around, the pastors, the pastoral residents, our comm group leaders. Our org chart is much more layered. There's a lot going on. Not so when we first launched. Our first launch Sunday in 2011, I think we had like three or four people that were serving. And I couldn't even tell you because we didn't even have any software for it. <laughs> we had no way. We didn't, we didn't have anything. And this is what I know about more people. More people mean more unmet expectations. It means more collisions. It means more drama, more mess. And that requires more leadership. And if you have a good job of putting more leaders in, it means you're going to get more people that can function together, which means more drama and even more dropped expectations and even more mess. But let me tell you, this is good. It's good to have a mess. It's so good. Because when you have a mess, you have a gospel ministry opportunity. Messes are moments. You and I can carry something into the mess. Grace, thoughtfulness, love, patience, mercy, wisdom. These are things that we have received from Christ as he entered our mess and found you and me not very impressive, but messy. He found us dramatic. He says in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He entered our mess. And so now we take the same shape as Jesus. We take the same um, form. We walk the same path. And we don't retreat from the messy drama around us, but we actually lean into it. I mean, that's, that's a truism about ministry. It's not ministry if you're not entering a mess. You could call it something, but you can't call it ministry if you're not entering a mess. That's what it is. And it's the mess becoming unmessy that shows how beautiful, at least in picture form, how beautiful the gospel is. So this passage for us in Acts is powerful because it shows a church beginning to crack under its own weight. I think that's helpful for us to see. I love it. I'm actually encouraged that Luke writes this and records this rather than deleting it just because it's got a lot of drama. I love how the Bible refuses to cover drama. I want you to remember that by this point in time in the storyline of the early church, it is believed, and I'm in the camp that believes that the church could be as big as 20,000 people right now. It got very big very fast. <laughs> Seems like a perfect time to sprinkle in a little bit of drama, right? I'm shocked it took this long for it to be thoroughly mentioned. And, and not just any drama, but rivalry or racism, if you just want to call it what it looks like, right? It says, a complaint arose. That's a pastor's favorite quote right there. A complaint arose. But listen, for good reason. These Hellenist widows were being dropped. Hellenist just means Greek, by the way. It means that there were widows that were, that were Christians, but they weren't from the Jewish side of culture. So they carried in their own food preferences, their own dress, their own traditions. They're They're Greek. And they were being neglected due to some residual rivalry. I mean, people were still applying the gospel to their lives just like we do. It's just like you, right? 
The gospel has not translated to all areas yet. And so this particular mess was a little bit of a combination between injustice and a sinful response to the injustice. So it's both racism and it's grumbling and it's complaining. It's a mess on top of a mess is what's going on. By the way, it's possible to be hurt and injured and still not respond appropriately, right? I know I don't have to say that, but let me just say it. Just because you suffer harm from somebody doesn't mean you can just start throwing jabs. It doesn't mean that your response to it can take any shape you want it to take because you're hurt. And I think this is sometimes what makes ministering inside of messes so difficult. Because if you've ever tried to do so, inevitably you will talk to the injured person and you will maybe talk to them about the sin that they exhibited in their response only to hear them say something like, so you're telling me what they did was okay? (laughs) You're telling me, so you're coming at me right now, you're telling me what they did is okay? No, 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 no. No, 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 what they did was wrong. But your response to it is wrong as well. Super difficult. But there's a principle in this. And it's a very obvious one as we zoom out from the weeds a little bit. And that principle is simply that broken people and broken systems injure us. Have you ever been dropped by a church before? I mean, I have. Have you ever been maybe mishandled by some bad structure, some systems that weren't really put into place very well? I I have. It's easy. A complaint arose. When this happens, our instinct is to declare that's not right. It's not right that I've been dropped. It's not right that this has affected me. And and you're right. It's not right. But complaining or grumbling, that's a sin against God first. And then it's a sin against community. Right? This is what complaining does in the human heart, at least mine. And I have a feeling that your heart's going to be a lot like mine. Complaining feels like all we're really doing is declaring that we're a victim. Declaring that something bad has happened to us, something that shouldn't have happened. But it's actually more than that. It's a complaint against God. It's a, a, a complaint that we lodge against God himself because we believe ultimately behind all of our complaining that he has victimized us. After all, he's the one that controls human history. He's the one that's sovereign. He's the one that allowed it. He's the one that designed it, however you want to say it. A complaint, among many things, says that God is not wise in how he unpacks his own sovereignty. What what complaining does, what grumbling does, what ranting does, is it says that God's strategy and his plan isn't as good as our plan and our strategy. So we place ourselves over God himself. And I think being a complainer, I think we're just convinced in our heads that that felt piece of justice, vindication, is just one complaint away. It feels so good to do it. But in the process, we're making something that's a mess a little bit messier, right? This is why we love hearing people complain about things. We love it. We love to listen to a rant, a good rant. Some of you are thinking, I don't. I hate it when I listen to people complain. You don't like hearing people complain about things that you disagree with, but when you hear people start ranting and complaining about things that you agree with, you love it. You love it because they're finally putting words to what you always felt and for whatever reason never put out there. But they're doing it, and we're attracted to it because in our heart of hearts, we think to ourselves, something must be said. And it's true. Agreed. Something should be said. But to whom? Who? The quick answer is we carry it to the Lord first, and then secondly, we carry it to leadership. Carry it to the Lord first. Lament it to the Lord. 
Leave it with the Lord. And believe this, even when you are injured, you are offended, you are the one that has been dropped. The Lord is still working on you. Oh, he's working on you in the process. So we carry it to the Lord. And then we carry it to leadership because the win is not our vindication, but it's the health of the church. That's the win. It's not that we're finally exonerated in some supreme moment of felt peace. It's for the health of the church. When I was writing this, I was imagining Peter hearing about this moment in Acts 6 with the widows. I was imagining hearing it from uh, social media. He gets a little text. Somebody says, hey, bro, have you seen Twitter today? So he looks, and there it is. Someone's complaining. A complaint arose. And it has 16,000 likes and 2,000 thumbs down, and it's been shared 4,000 times, and there's a long, long, long list of statements, surely wise ones, right underneath it. And I imagine he reads that and thinks, man, you know what? I hate racism, but I hate that this is happening too. Because what was a mess just became messier. Here's the big diagnostic question. Where does your heart grumble in hopes of vindication? Virtually, where do you complain? Where do we complain? Because listen, I'll even agree with you. Things aren't right. We do need change. And until Jesus comes back and grabs us and collects us and pulls us all together, until that happens, that will always be the theme. Things need to change. Until right replaces wrong forever, you will always feel the sharp edges of wrong. It's what you do with that. It's what you do with this injury. How we carry it. Christ carried injustice all the way to the grave. We have a hard time carrying it to the car. We refresh the app over and over again just to see who agrees with our rant. (laughs) I just think we could do a lot better than that. We can do better than this. And listen, I'm coming to you as someone who is the president of the Grumble Club. I'm the president. I struggle with this. It's a big area of growth for me. If you've ever hung out with me, you'll hear me complain. It just starts leaking out of my pores. I was telling my DNA group this week that all all it takes is for my Bluetooth not to sync right when I want it to, and I turn into this Saturday Night Live sketch of myself, right? I'm over the top. I sound like a toddler. This is a big area of growth for me. Small matters and big matters, but this is what I know when I'm feeling, when I'm feeling the comfort of God, when I believe in the gospel, in those serious matters of injustice, I'm able to remind myself that God hates this injustice more than I do. Oh, he hates it more than I do. And he's proven so with this gospel. And he will make all things wrong right eventually. I have to remind myself that his plan is wiser than mine. It's more thoughtful than mine. I'm open in that moment to to the work that he wants to do in me, even though I might be the one that's bruised. I might be the one that's not getting what he wanted. He's doing work in me. I'm open to the injustice that I feel like has happened to me, never, ever being fixed in my time on this planet doesn't matter if I ever get that exoneration or not. I'm free to take my complaints to him, to lament them, to submit them to him, and then to move on and let them go. I just don't need vindication. I don't need it for peace. I have peace in Christ. This is me on a good day. (laughs) I know that vindication belongs to God alone. I know that I don't handle vindication very well. I don't do a good job with it. Friends, this is such a hard area to grow in, isn't it? 
I, I will say this, without the Holy Spirit, I think it's impossible. I just think it's impossible. Without the Holy Spirit. When the Christian grumbles about the church and what the church did or did not do, what kind of trust does this display before a watching world? When the Christian grumbles about politics or red lights or Uber Eats or whatever, how does that illustrate their view of God's sovereignty and how he is unpacking everything? When someone's been in seven churches in five years because of messy people or messy systems, what does that communicate? Honestly, I feel so very sad for people sometimes who are perpetually complaining, always injured, always hurt, always looking for the perfect set of systems and the perfect structure and the perfect church with the perfect people. I'm not even sure Peter's church would have been good enough for him. You see, a rising complaint is all too common. And let me just say, that too is a form of missional drift. That too is missional drift. And again, we can be different. I think some of us today might be carrying complaints in here with us. Let me just give you some assurance. You are not one rant away from peace on earth. Christ himself holds the vindication and he will reverse all injustice one day. In one day, in one day, all the cosmos will finally witness what perfect justice looks like. That's amazing to me. And all the injustice you bring to the table because we ourselves are rebels. We're, we're not just offended. We're offenders. We too are villains. And all the injustice we bring to the table will either be loaded on the shoulders of Christ or they will come on our own shoulders. And if we load that on his shoulders, you will find mercy. If you come with it on your own shoulders, you're just going to find terror and sadness. Can you trust your injustice to Jesus? Can you just trust it? Can you trust it? So hard to do. This is so hard. So the apostles acknowledge that this is a significant issue, this racism, but they also acknowledge something else. If, if you saw it, they are also saying they can't do it all. Have you noticed that? They've finally found the edges of their limitations, kind of like Moses. It's not good that they're covering so much ground. They're going to wear themselves out. You see, the apostles have this singular mission to drive mission forward, particularly through preaching and prayer, right? That's what they're doing. But it's obvious that management is needed now, good management. So they had the disciples select seven men that were reputable for having the, the, the fullness of the Spirit and, and a deep wisdom. And here's a quick question. At least it's a question I have. Why all the selectivity? All they're doing is serving people, right? I mean, can't anybody do that? Do you, do you really need someone that's full of the Holy Spirit to hand out food or stack chairs or whatever? I mean, do you need somebody that's full of the Holy Spirit and super wise to do that? I mean, it, it, is a, it is a good question worth asking because, yeah, anybody can do that, but these guys are also going to be bumping into problems that require discernment. Not everything is prescribed for us in the Bible. Wisdom is needed to discern direction in the absence of direct prescription, which we will actually see as the church grows and gets more complicated. You see Paul speak to it. Paul's going to talk about pastoral selection, right? They had to discern that. Widow care, not just widow care, but how to handle young single women versus older single women. Civil disobedience, all of these things. Food used in idol sacrifice. There's no hard and fast prescriptions for this original church in this. So the church needed spirit-led wisdom for good discernment. I think, it's, I think it's pretty clear. We need this too. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us how to set our budget levels. 
Or what kind of background check should we use? They really push us in one direction over the other when it comes to a facility search or a mandate or staff hires. We're not told specifically exactly what to do, but we do know that the Holy Spirit gives wisdom. We know that with this wisdom, we can discern a matter, right? And this is the wisdom we need to navigate the foggy issues. By the way, these 12 right now, the, the disciples that are maybe putting together this team of seven or at least delegating it out that it would happen. They're not demeaning servant ministry. They're not saying we need to install a JV so that we could go off and do varsity work. They're actually elevating the ministry of service by giving it away to people that can specialize in it, people who can minister in that really deep direction while they focused on their specific responsibilities. This is a step towards health for the church because it's a step towards specialization. And we get that. Listen, I love our kiddos. We've got a bazillion of them back there. I love our kids back there. I don't know what's going on back there, though. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't check anyone's kids in. I don't know what's going on, and you want it that way, right? Because if I was in charge, all of them would be out in the parking lot biting each other. Two would probably go missing. Some of you would never come back, right? You don't want me doing anything, anything that has anything to do with kids. I'm happy to serve in those areas, but really... For us to be a healthier church, we need to specialize, right? I mean, I was up here this morning. You can ask anyone that handles setup and tear down. I, I come up way earlier probably than I should. And I try to help, but I end up just pushing stuff around and talking, which means I'm distracting everybody. Three times this morning, three times, three different people had to stop me and say, hey, we got this. Is there something else you could be doing? <laughs> Someone just came out and said that. Hey, you, know, you have like a sermon to work on or something like that? I'm being dismissed, totally dismissed. And that's good. That's healthy for the church. Another big question is, is are these deacons being set in right here? The answer is, is not sure, right? But they are deaconing. That's what the word means when it comes into service. They're deaconing. And this is a good picture of what deacons could look like for certain. And because it is kind of ethereal, is a little bit of a gray in this, this is why churches will grab different positions on this theologically. Legacy has several deacons here, most of them women, and we don't have a formal process. That's something we talked about in the last partnership meeting, maybe driving us more into more of a formalized process of building our deacons and grooming our deacons. We'll likely move to that in the future. And without getting into the weeds, a deacon is not a pastor. Okay, some of you might have grown up in a tradition where deacons were actually functioning as what we would call a pastor or an elder or an overseer or a shepherd, which they're all the same office, right? So where a, a pastor steers, a deacon will serve. So deacons are actually functioning in more of a service posture. Sometimes they're over a team Sometimes they're over a department, but that would be the big difference, again, without getting deep into the weeds. But if you have questions over that, I'd love to answer them a little bit later. But there is a principle, again, if we zoom out, and that is that God calls his people into full-time ministry, whether you're paid or not. If you're a Christian, you're called to share the load with the church, to share ministry load. There is no version of the church in the New Testament where we find this dichotomy of professionals and passengers. It just doesn't exist. But because we're all different, that means we have different ministries, right? 
Not all of us are musicians. You're going to hear a great team up here today. They are musicians. I am not. Not everybody can interpret a profit and loss statement. Not everyone can turn on that soundboard. If you even tried to turn on the soundboard, Jeff would suplex you. Somebody would be up there. They would stop you before you got anywhere close to it. But so, some of you would have a hard time greeting, right? Because what is uphill running for you actually is downhill running for other people. And this is good for the common good, right? For the common health of the church. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. And you can stay where you're at in Acts. I'm just going to read this quickly. He's speaking to another small church. He says in 12, verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them and all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Now, to be fair, the greater context of this passage is how the Holy Spirit allows us to do things supernaturally that are, that are really not within the confines of our frame, right? But what I want you to pick up in there is that there's a variety of things happening from a variety of different positions. We bring things to the table, whether it's your personality is set up a certain way, you have a certain skill set, you have an ex a certain history or experience set, God has gifted you in a certain way, but there is a variety, even in a church our size, a church this small, there is a variety of services, and this just beckons participation for the common good, which brings health to the church. And that's the best thing for the city of Knoxville is a healthy church. It's the best thing. So the big question is, what service do you render for the common good? Ask yourself. What service do you render for the common good? Not, not what did you used to do. Not what would you like to do when life calms down. How do you serve the body of Christ? Okay, because listen, true. It's true. Our capacity to share load, it's going to acclimate with the seasons of life. It does. We all know that. You can't do with five kids what you did when you were single. Okay? We all know that. We shift in how we serve from season to season. But we never shift into a life of no service. That I can't find anywhere. We talk about this in the partnership class. <clears throat> Some of you in the last two or three probably are going to remember this a little bit fresher than the others, but that's one of the distinctions between being a member of something and being a partner of something. A member carries a certain question to the table, which is, what do I get out of this? A partner carries a different question, which is, what can I bring to this? Two very different things. And, and you know this functionally, right? I'm a member at a gym. So when I signed on the dotted line, signed my life away, basically, to get, it, to get into this gym, I, 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 I said, ultimately, what am I getting out of this? But I'm not cleaning their toilets. I'm not partnered with them. I'm not going to be picking up trash everywhere. I might say, hey, there's some trash over here, but I'm not going to pick it up. I, I'm not going to help generate content for Netflix or whatever streaming service I am a member of. But a partner does something different. A partner carries what they can do to the picture for the health and for the good of the body. And we actually see this even nationally. If you look at old black and white photos of 1942, when America was just in the throes of World War II, you see these interesting pictures where the U.S. shared load for the common good. It's probably most symbolized by Rosie the Riveter. You'd see in different forms, you see this woman just pounding rivets into this plane. And it became this symbol of women flooding into the workforce, taking jobs that typically men would have. You'd see kids and you'd see the elderly, those outside of draft age, collecting things like metal, collecting things like rubber and even paper. Why? For the common good. 
for the common good. Not everybody carried a rifle, but everybody fought in that war. Not everybody led a battalion back then, but they knew where the collection checkpoints were and they could lead you there. Everybody deaconed for the common good. Let me just say this. If church is where you sit on Sundays, if church is where you passenger, you are missing so much of the treasure found in joining Jesus and his people. You are missing so much. We share in the mess. We share this mess, which means we're sharing in growth. It means we're sharing in ministry, which means we're sharing in joy. We share this with each other, and then we share it with Jesus. And that's where the comfort comes from. That's where the depth of joy comes from, because Christ is one who never grumbled, never complained, never a passenger. He served us as the uber deacon, the greatest deacon, meeting our biggest needs, not just our carnal ones. He became a man of repute, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, a wise discerner, and he took care of all of us, not just those who were offended, but the offenders. This is the picture of Christ. We see in Matthew 20 that he came to serve, not to be served. And he didn't just serve, he served to death. He served us to death. And now we're free. I'm free. I'm free. And I'm free to serve you at my cost for your benefit. Because there's a shared joy I get with Christ when I get to do that. I'm free to share a ministry load because there's this radical joy in radical service. We're free from the need to self-save or escape service because of the lie that comfort is found when you are not serving others, but comfort is found when you are just taking care of you and yourself. By the way, I'm not talking about Sunday morning volunteers right now. Surely we need this, and surely you know that, because we announce it every other week, right? And that's not because we don't have a facility. When we get a facility, we'll actually need more volunteers, not less. We don't just need help up here. I mean, we need community group leaders and hosts. We need all kinds of things. Listen, we need, we need help and service in areas I can't even see yet. You see it. That's why when you walk in sometimes, you think to yourself, you know what legacy needs? Legacy could really use some help here. Hey, hey, listen, we can't see that. We don't even know that that's a need. That's something for you to tell us. This is no manipulative plea to give volunteers. Again, I'm not going to put some text line up on the screen. If you feel like volunteering, there's cards on the front table you can grab on the way out. This is rather a plea to pick up your cross and serve for the rest of your life in this church, in any church, in small ways, in big ways. It is a plea to pick up the cross because for ministry to grow, ministry must be shared or mission will drift. That I know for sure. That's the equation that we will always see. For ministry to grow, ministry must be shared or the mission will drift. The mission to carry the gospel to the world. The story of God's goodness and his favor to mankind through the person of Jesus who came to live, die, and live again to send the helper to us, the empowering spirit to us, while he prepares a place for us, and one day he will come and get us all again. That gospel, that we carry it to the ends of the earth, that we declare it and we demonstrate it, and make disciples who will do the exact same thing. 
to make servant leaders in every single area of life that we cannot afford to drift from. Because this gospel is the greatest news in the world. Even for consumers, even for complaining consumers, Listen, if you freeload your way all through this life and all you do is hunt for the best professionals to serve you just the way you like it, it won't change the level of God's love for you. His approval does not waver according to how we serve. It doesn't. And I'm glad for that. You're free to fail. You're free to complain. You're free to freeload, to consume, to grumble. You're free to be a passenger. I know it sounds a little bit wrong for me to say all of this, but if our performance is required to gain love, then the gospel is no longer good. It's just more rules. But Jesus followed the rules that we could not. He took the sin that we committed. So all of that's true. But we're also free to enjoy this shared load of ministry. We're free to do that. Because all of our comfort comes from God. It doesn't come from being a passenger. It comes from Christ. And when things get messy, we just enter the mess for the common good. We minister. We serve. So we're free to sacrifice our time and talent for the sake of the church's health and the city. Listen, I don't know where this passage finds you. If it finds you more of a complainer or more of a freeloader, it finds me as a complainer, as I've already said. But it gives us an opportunity to repent, and not just for complaining, and not just for freeloading, not just for being a passenger, but for the areas of unbelief there kind of lurk underneath it. There's a reason we complain. So yeah, we repent for our complaining and grumbling and ranting, but we also complain for this toxic view of God that he's not a very good one, that we would be a better one, that his sovereignty is sick and it's thoughtless. We repent for that as well. We don't just repent for freeloading and being a passenger. We also repent for this weird, toxic view of God that ultimate comfort isn't to be found in him, but it's to be found way over here, taking care of just ourselves. Not to take the shape of Christ, but to be our own God. There's a lot to repent for. And listen, if you're far from Jesus, and you're not a Christian, and you're watching or you're here, listen, you see that the church is a mess. I know you do. And if you don't, I've got stories for you. (laughs) It's a mess. But let's admit it, your life is a mess too. I'm sure you've got some stories for me. And I'll tell you, the better landing spot for our grumbling is the shoulders of Christ. The cross is where injustice goes to die. It's where our offenses go to die. The cross isn't where we go to improve. It's where we go to die. Our complaints stop there. There is rest. Let me just give you a a point of rest. The point of rest for you if you are far from Christ is that Jesus hates injustice more than everyone in this room combined. He hates injustice more than the cosmos combined, enough to just come and to reverse it himself. The gospel is perfect for complainers. The gospel is perfect for consumers and wounded messes. If that is you, you need to know that Jesus is perfect for you. And salvation is only going to be found in trusting Jesus over your own vindication, over your own sovereignty. We just abandon ourself. It's the step towards God that we abandon ourself and we trust him. And for the rest of us, there will be a day where praise replaces complaint and unity is all we'll ever know. Just picture it in your mind. Try to capture it in your mind just for a moment. 
We won't look for vindication any longer because it's going to be held in the right hand of Jesus. And that's going to be enough for us. We'll be content and satisfied and deeply comforted by this. We will refuse to grumble. We will refuse to exit because we will be so intoxicated with the person of Christ as we sit and we tan and we bask and the glory that he gives off. Until then, we just refuse to escape shared ministry. We refuse to grumble. We refuse to exit. Until then, we show a world of complainers the better and the freer path of Jesus.